John chapter 4 records a meeting that took place in Samaria. We're going to read the majority of this narrative, not all of it, but the majority. And I know it's a long passage, but it's important for us to see how this, this unfolds, to understand the meaning of it and its implication for us today. So I want to begin reading, and I ask you to follow along with me in your copy of the Bible, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming... And is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When He comes, 
He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Would you bow with me and let's pray again. Gracious Lord, we come to you as a people who are thirsty. Father, many of us have reached a point where we wonder if this thirst can ever be quenched. And Lord, for others, we, we live life acting as if that thirst isn't there. But Lord, deep down, we know something is lacking. We know something is missing. So Father, we come to you asking for your help. Taking Jesus at his word, we are asking for living water this morning. And Lord, we praise you that you are this water. We praise you that you never run dry. And we thank you that you are able to meet our deepest longings. So Father, accomplish your will this morning. Father, we have heard this passage many times to the point where, Lord, our ears become callous to it. So Lord, by the power of your Spirit, break through our hardness of hearing and help us to really listen. In the name of Jesus, we pray and we ask this. And the church said, Amen. Much of America's mythology involves the Old West. And there are images that are iconic. Images that, that resonate with us when we think about the, the legends that surround the cowboys that lived during that time. One of the images that often comes to mind takes place in a town. It's a dry and dusty day. The people of the town are all holed up inside their shops. And tumbleweeds are rolling through the town like cattle on their way to another stall. The saloon doors swing open. And out steps the bad guy. We know he's the bad guy because he's wearing a black hat. And there's no doubt he has been up to no good. His spurs clink against the wood as he steps off the, the porch. And onto the street. He walks to the middle of the street and he turns squarely to face the jail. And then the door of the jail opens and out steps the sheriff. You can tell in his eyes he's weary and he hoped that it would not come to this, but he walks out into the street to meet the villain. They stand 30 feet apart, waiting, hands near the trigger. Exactly. The confrontation at high noon. It's part of American lore. There's a meeting that takes place here in John 4. A confrontation at high noon. It's not taking place in the center of town, but out near a well. Jacob's well. And it's not a confrontation between a, a sheriff and a villain or a hero and the bad guy, or even the Lone Ranger and Butch Cavendish. This is the confrontation between a Savior and a sinner. A confrontation between the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous. And please understand that this is not just dry history telling us a story that happened in the life of Jesus. This is an instance in the life of Jesus like his entire life that has implications for us today because what happened underneath that hot Palestinian sun next to that well is something that resonates into eternity. 
verses 1 through 4 really set the scene. Confrontation is beginning to arise as the Pharisees are taking notice that, that there are now two prophets in the land. John the Baptist has been preaching and baptizing and now this Jesus out of Nazareth is drawing a great crowd and his disciples are baptizing. So since the time has not come for Jesus' death and because he doesn't want the message of repentance to be lost, Jesus decides to make his way north into Galilee. The country of Israel had three regions. Judea in the north where Jesus had been, or in the south, Galilee in the north where he was going, and in between the two was Samaria. So to get to the north, he had to go through the middle. He had to go through Samaria. But Samaria was the place that a good person would avoid. Hundreds of years prior to this meeting, the Assyrian army had come in to Samaria and they had taken the region captive. Some of the people that lived there, some of the Israelites had been scattered, but others that had remained had begun to intermarry with the Assyrians. These women were accused of being traitors. And not only were they accused of betraying their, their nation, they were looked upon with disdain because now they had, had watered down, they had corrupted the line of purity that was the Jews. And if that wasn't enough, the Samaritans only believed in the Torah. For them, the first five books were the only authoritative part of the Old Testament. So Isaiah held no meaning to them. Jeremiah fell on deaf ears. The Psalms weren't sung. The Proverbs weren't quoted. This was an area that a good Jewish person would pass through as quickly as they could. In fact, the Jews who had money and time would avoid Samaria altogether. They would travel to the east going around the entire region if they had the money and if they had the time. But Jesus was pressed for time and didn't have the money. So he had to go through Samaria. Now you and I would probably have approached Samaria like going through the bad part of town. Lock your doors and don't make eye contact with anybody. But Jesus is driven by more than just the geographical necessity of going through Samaria. What is said in verse 4 carries with it a weight. This isn't just his travel itinerary. There was a divine appointment waiting. There was an appointment with a woman who didn't even know it that would take place, as we are told, beside a well in verse 6 and at noon. The disciples had gone into town to get food. It was around lunchtime, time for the midday meal. And maybe, as we are told in the text, Jesus was just too tired to take another step. He was weary, exhausted, so he sends the disciples on ahead. But behind his weariness is the knowledge that something is about to happen. A meeting with a woman. She came to the well by herself. The other women would have come at the breaking of the day. They would have come in a group to, to talk, to catch up on what is going on. And maybe she had tried coming with them for a while. But after a while, the silence became unbearable. Have you ever walked upon a group that was talking and laughing? And then when they see you, the laughing stops. And the silence meets you. And you know without a word being said, you're not welcome because you don't fit into their world. Maybe she was just tired of the whispers. The gossip behind her back. There she 
see how anybody could live like that. You'd think she'd come to her senses and stop that. So it was just easier to come along. You didn't have to put up with that anymore. It was easier to come by herself than to put up with the pain. The pain that was pressed upon her by the people around her. And that's when the confrontation takes place. It's not an ugly confrontation between Jesus and this woman. No, this is a confrontation that goes much deeper because Jesus confronts the prejudices of that day. And in doing so, he's confronting the prejudices that we have today also. Verses 9 through 14, he begins talking with her and she is shocked. In fact, the fact that Jesus spoke with her would be scandalous. And that's why she says, why are you a Jew talking to me, a woman from Samaria? You see, Jesus, in engaging in this conversation, is breaking the gender bias. He is talking to a woman. And on top of that, it's not just any woman. He's breaking the ethnic bias by talking to a Samaritan woman. And not only is he talking to a Samaritan woman, now Jesus is breaking the prejudice of of a moral bias because he's talking to a Samaritan woman who is considered to be the bad girl of the town. And the amazing thing is his conversation isn't self-centered. This is probably a woman who is used to a man only talking to her when he wants something when she is something to be used by him but here is Jesus not using her but wanting to give to her because he begins engaging with a conversation with her about the gospel he brings up this issue of living water a living water that she needed then and that we so desperately need now this living water is clear it's life-giving This living water is the gospel. And the gospel at its essence is God's gift to us. It is God's gift of himself. Notice the parallel ideas in verse 10. Jesus says, if you knew what the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Notice the emphasis on give, a gift that is given. What does Jesus give? The living water. And that living water is the gift of or the gift that is God. Now, living water physically is water that is running. It flows from a spring and fills creeks. It fills up rivers and it is life-giving at its moves. Opposed to that is water that becomes putrid because it is not moving. This water could be a puddle or a pond that becomes infested with scum and ends up breeding death. So this image of living water is one that is moving and alive and active and that gives life. The imagery that Jesus uses is rooted in the Old Testament. As we read earlier today in Jeremiah 2, the living water is God himself. So the gift of God is God giving himself to us. And he is saying that what you are longing for in your thirst for meaning is God himself. That God alone is the satisfaction for which we seek. God alone can give what our hearts thirst for. Because we are seeking, whether we realize it or not, to satisfy a thirst for meaning and purpose and satisfaction. The issue is not do we long for those things. We all do. We all long for meaning. We all long for love. We all long for purpose. The question is where are you seeking it? A gentleman by the name of William Langswich wrote a book entitled Sahara Unveiled. 
He himself set out on a journey to travel the Sahara to find out the, the legends that surrounded it and how difficult this arid environment is. And in his research, he came across the story of an Algerian man who was nicknamed Lag Lag. What a great nickname. Lag Lag. I wonder if he just lagged behind. But on this day, he more than lagged behind. He and his partner encountered truck trouble. Their vehicle came to a stop. And for the next three weeks, they were stuck in the Sahara Desert till rescue came. Lag Lag and his friend dug a small trench underneath the truck so they could escape the burning sun in the Sahara. They would get under it and hide in the shade. They had a pretty decent food supply, but they tried not to eat because they were afraid that eating would actually stoke their desire for water. Because the greatest danger in the desert is not starvation. It's dehydration. After about a week, their water ran out. They rationed what they could, but eventually they made the decision that the only source of water they could find was the source of water that was in their truck, specifically in their truck's engine. So they uncapped the radiator and emptied out the water and began to drink it. The only problem was this, that water was poisoned. So in trying to slake their thirst, they were actually killing themselves with what they drank. What happened to that poor Algerian man and his friend is a picture of what is played out in our lives spiritually every day. We are thirsty. What will quench that thirst? Surely, having enough money, that is what will quench that thirst. But once we get what we think will keep us happy, what do we find? I need just a little bit more. Or this is what happens. We begin to, to get resources and all of a sudden the fear begins to creep up. What if I lose it? What if I lose it? I've got to hang on. And so instead of feeling satisfied, we are filled with worry and fear about what happens. Others, the issue is not money. It's power. We want the position of power. That is what will make us have meaning. That is what will give us a sense of satisfaction. If we are in the position of power to make things happen, if people come to us, but what happens then in the pursuit of power is they begin doing anything at all to attain that. And then they reach the pinnacle of power only to find out they are alone and unloved. And what they thought would give satisfaction at the height of their profession is only leading to emptiness. Others turn to relationships. Date to date, person to person. Surely there's someone out there that will be that, that soulmate that I will connect with and that will bring satisfaction only to find that no one else on this earth can feel the deepest longing in their soul. And after a while, instead of continuing to seek for love, they well up their heart underneath rock, underneath hardness, underneath lead so that they will never feel any pain or hurt again. But the problem is they're still thirsty. Because all those thirst quenchers only bring poison. And here is Jesus talking to one and offering to her and offering to us living water to know God. And notice that this is a gift. This gift of God is not something that is earned. It is given. It is His grace. It is the grace of God in which God gives Himself to us through Jesus Christ. Because notice what Jesus says. You would have asked him, referring to himself, and he would have given to you. This is where the gospel becomes scandalous. 
Because the only way to know God is through Jesus Christ. The only way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If we desire this living water that is God Himself, the only way to get it is through Jesus Christ. And that's where she begins to have a hard time. This woman looks at him and says, you don't have anything to draw water with. This well's deep. Jacob's well was over 100 feet deep. So she is processing this and and starting to hunger for this living water. But her question is, how can you give this to me? Verse 12, she asks a question that anticipates a negative answer. Are you greater than our father Jacob? She anticipates the answer to be no. She implies that Jesus is a con man. What are you trying to sell me? You're saying you can give me living water. Are you greater than this water that came from the patriarch Jacob himself? He clearly has no rope. He doesn't have a bucket. How's he going to do this? That's why Jesus' answer is amazing. He says to her, you drink this water, you'll be thirsty again. Now he starts to tell her this is something more than physical water. Jesus says, I am greater than Jacob. He says, I am greater than the patriarchs. What they gave unto you could not satisfy eternally. It could not change a heart. Jesus says, you drink from that well, you will be thirsty again. But if you come to me, the water that I give to you will spring up in a well. Look at the description that he gives in verse 14. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Whereas that well that she was standing by could run dry one day. Jesus says the gift of God that I give you will well up within you and never run dry. Now Jesus is not saying that we become gods. Not at all. He's referring to the Holy Spirit. This image of living water comes back again in John chapter 7. You'll see this upon the screen in John chapter 7 verses 37 through 39. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's the very last day of the feast, a day of celebration. And Jesus cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Sounds sounds familiar. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Believe in Jesus, have these rivers of living water. God himself flowing out. Now how does that happen? Verse 39. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. He says this, I will give you the Spirit of God Himself within you. And there is no limit upon God. There is no boundaries upon God. It will spring up into you. You can have all of God you can ever want or experience. How? By believing in Jesus Christ. And this woman wants this water. Give it to me, she says in verse 15. You can almost hear a pleading within her. So I will not be thirsty. And notice what she says. Or have to come here to draw water. It's like she says. She's starting to wake up. She says, give me this so I won't be thirsty. And I won't have to deal with the pain and the gossip and any of this anymore. So I don't have to come here. I can leave this behind. And then Jesus takes the conversation in a very unexpected direction. talks about where she is presently not geographically but morally now Jesus seeks to accomplish two things in doing this when he confronts her with her sin he is saying that we must recognize that we cannot come and drink of the living water of God and still have a cup in the fountain of this world 
That's why he says, go get your husband. Well, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, you're right, you don't. In fact, let me tell you, you've been married five times and now you're living with a man. Implied in that is you need to turn to God and leave that behind. You see, in coming to God, we must repent of our sins. And to do that, God graciously reveals our sins. The largest Southern Baptist church in the world is not located in the United States. It's actually located in Seoul, Korea. The pastor of that church is a man by the name of Paul Cho. And many years ago, as the church was growing and his reputation was increasing, he began to get invitations to speak at international events. And as the invitations came in, he began praying and he said, Lord, I will go anywhere you want me to go except... Have you ever made that statement to God? Lord, I'll do anything except this. And this was Paul chose except. God, I'll go anywhere except Japan. You see, Cho carried a bitterness, a hatred for Japan. He had seen what had happened to the Korean people during World War II. He knew the stories firsthand of what the Japanese army had done to his own relatives. And there was a hatred in there. So you could pretty much guess what happened next. He was inundated with requests to speak in Japan. And just like Jonah went to Nineveh with a reluctant heart, so Paul Cho went to Japan with a reluctant heart. His first speaking engagement was to a pastor's conference. Over 1,000 pastors from all across Southeast Asia had gathered in Japan, but the majority of them were Japanese. He stood at the podium with his prepared remarks, but what came of his mouth was something he nor anyone there anticipated. As tears welled up in his eyes, the only thing he could begin saying was this, I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. Soon he became silent and tears were welling up and streaming down his face. To this day he doesn't know the name of the first pastor that stood up. He just knows that one man stood up and walked down the aisle, came to where Paul Cho was standing, bent his head and reached out his hand and laid his hand on his feet and began saying this, forgive our people for what we've done. Forgive our people for what we've done. We love you. Then another pastor joined him and another pastor until eventually the aisles were full, the altar area was full. And by the end of that service, Paul Cho was looking at those people saying, I love you. I love you. God reveals sin in order to heal sin. God reveals our brokenness, in other, in other words, so that we can be made whole. God reveals the areas where we need His grace so that we can experience His grace fully. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing here. He is revealing what in her life needs to be healed. But this is the second thing He does. He does not reveal that she needs healing without pointing her to the source of healing, which is Himself. In this instance, Jesus is showing her that He 
is the Messiah. He speaks to her and he reveals something that only the Messiah could know. He had no, no previous uh, interaction with her. He did not know her by earthly means. But when he looks at her, he knew her past and her present and her future. And he is saying to her in this instance, I know what you've done. And I am the way that that past can be put behind you. That's why she goes to another issue. Now some read this and think that she's diverting attention away from her sin. That's possible. But I think now the, the light is starting to go on where she recognizes this is a prophet. Because if she were trying to divert the attention away from her sin, do you think Jesus would let her? Do you think Jesus would get sidetracked? But he doesn't. She asks a question about worship. You see, he's leading the conversation step by step so that she will recognize who he is. Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Okay, the light's going on. This man here in front of me is more than a man. So how can we know God? Okay, if it's starting to register, the gift is God. The gift is God's grace. The legitimate question is, where can I know God? How can I meet him? That's why she says, our fathers say you know God on this mountain, which is Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim is the mountain in the Old Testament where the blessings would be pronounced upon the people of Israel. It's logical for them to think, if you want the blessings of God, you go to the mountain where the blessings of God were pronounced. But the Jews said it's in Jerusalem. That's where you meet God. So she says, okay, I want to know God. Where? Where? Settle this. Where can I know Him? Jesus says the issue isn't where but who. It's not where but who. Now notice... He also says in verse 22, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we know for salvation from the Jews. Very subtly, Jesus says the Jews have it right. But even they have it wrong. Because the issue is no longer the place, it's the person. You know what God's seeking? He's seeking that one who will worship him in spirit and in truth. He's looking for that one whose heart's desire is set upon him. He's looking for that one who is rooted in the truth of who he is. And that's why he says the hour now is. Because how can we change our desires so that we no longer want the water of this world and we want the living water that is God? It is by having a new heart. How do we have a new heart? It is what Jesus Christ gives us as he gives us desires for him because he is the one who is the way, the truth, and the light. He is leading her to this declaration found in verse 26 Jesus said I who speak to you am he that's the whole point of this he wants to lead this woman and he wants to lead us to recognize that what we are searching for is found in God and the way we know God is in Jesus you realize that with every desire that God has given us there's a way to fulfill it you desire food you're hungry desire something to eat there's food you desire companionship, there are people that you can know and gain companionship. For every desire God has given us, there is a way to meet that desire. So would God give us a desire for eternal life without a way to meet it? Would He give us longings for something other than this world if there is no other way to meet that? And He's saying the way to meet those desires and to slake the thirst for eternity is found through Jesus Christ because Jesus gives us God. You see, this confrontation, this meeting at high noon at Jacob's well is about us. What barriers are keeping you? Where are you sought? 
water that you believed would fill your deepest longings. Understand that the invitation is open for all who would come. That's why he's talking with the Samaritan woman. If there was anybody that would be an unlikely candidate for the gospel, it would have been her. She had her race, her gender, and her morality all going against her. But here's the very Son of God saying, ask me and I'll give it. Isn't that wonderful? He's living out what God said in Isaiah 55. You'll see it up on the screen. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. How can you buy it if you don't have the money? somebody else has purchased it for you that's the invitation to no matter who you are where you've gone what you've done living waters available come and drink I want to ask you to bow your heads with me Nathan and I will be at the front if you would like someone to talk with you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ or if this sermon has brought up questions and you're wondering, okay, what, what does it mean to say that Jesus is the only way to God? I want to invite you, whether it be during this invitation or even after the service, to find me or to find Nathan and it will be our pleasure to talk with you. For others, it may be a decision today to say, you know what, I need to unite with Trinity as my church home. Or maybe it's just a prayer of repentance where you recognize that you have been pursuing waters that will indeed poison you. And today you know you need to stop drinking from those wells. To that end, the kneeling benches up here are open and available. You need to take that physical step of saying, Lord, I, I turn from those things. God, I've drunk from these wells too long and my soul is still thirsty. Come and drink the living water. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gracious gift of yourself. Had you not reached down to us, Father, we could not reach up to you. Had you not extended and loved us first, we could not love you. Father, had you not extended to us this invitation, we could never drink of living water. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to drink deeply. Open our eyes, Father. Open our eyes to see the false wells from which we drink. And help us to see that you and you alone will satisfy. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.